Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything about Australian politics and more. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube, and now we're also on Spotify as well. You can get updates from our website, newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at the big swings against the Liberal Party. We have another Royal Commission, this time into aged care and nursing homes. And is it the Muppet Show or the Fat Man Scoop Show? We look at how the new Prime Minister has been travelling in his first month of office. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, writer, historian and musician. It's going to be a very interesting time for all the political junkies around Australia with two big elections in the largest states, Victoria in November and New South Wales in March next year. And there's also a big federal election coming up. There's trouble brewing for the Liberal Party, though. They've dumped a Prime Minister without explanation, they're strapped for cash, and they haven't got much of an agenda. Federally, the first big test will be the by-election of Wentworth in late October, the seat vacated by Malcolm Turnbull, and it's likely to go down to the wire. There are big problems for the Liberal Party. Have they lost their way? I think they have. It's very hard to predict anything since about 2010 or so. The old rules have been thrown out and there are no new rules. So whereas before we could say with some confidence, well, all this has happened and historically the precedence has been result X, now we can't say that for sure. Historically, I'd say the Liberal Party is due to do one of its occasional rearrangements, Liberal to Nationalist, Nationalist to United Australia, United Australia to Liberal The last one was probably 1977 when uh, John Howard becomes treasurer and the Deaconite tradition of liberalism slowly gets eroded away to be replaced by a Reedite and then an American form of free trading. I can't really see that the two halves of the party, the moderates and the the hardliners or the wets and the dries as they used to be called, can resolve themselves anymore. So this is an issue that we've discussed quite often in previous episodes, that the Liberal Party, it just seems like they've been unprepared for government. It's enough for them just to get into government and keep Labor out. But I think the electorate is quite sick of this. And recently there was a Wagga by-election. Now, this is a Liberal Party stronghold that never lost a seat. It's a state election rather than a federal uh, by-election, but the Liberals lost to an independent and there was almost a 30% swing against it. These are state matters, but there must be some spillover that gets into the federal sphere as well. The old candidate, Maguire, was not a great candidate. He'd been involved in all those corrupt building deals in the inner city of Sydney around Canterbury. I think there's anger at all levels at the Liberal Party. Whether justified or not, it doesn't matter. There's anger. There was that famous picture of Gladys Berejiklian walking down the street, nobody coming up to meet her. This is rare in politics. Even the party faithful will come out and try and boost numbers. 30% swing at a federal level would take them down to national party levels of seats. There's a risk, except I think the national party are in the same boat, that the National Party could become the senior member of the coalition, except, of course, they're not in coalition in in opposition. But there is a scenario where the National Party may win more seats than the Liberal Party if that 30% swing holds nationwide. Well, that would be quite a fascinating situation if that did unfold. I know that we're mainly talking about state polling at the moment, but there is quite a lot of bleed that goes from the state into the federal area. 
but the latest polling in New South Wales has the Labor Party slightly ahead and a virtual unknown, Luke Foley, he's the leader of the Labor opposition, he's actually the preferred Premier. There's a civil war that's raging in the Liberal Party, there's a spill motion against the Deputy Premier that's being threatened, the Victorian Liberals are also behind in the recent polling, there's quite a lot of stuff going on within state politics which will bleed over to the federal sphere. And there's also other issues as well. You need money to run elections and the Liberal Party is very short of money at the moment and they're low on staff support. One of the things that the leadership spill did was uh, remove two of the Liberal Party's biggest fundraisers, Malcolm Turnbull, who famously donated uh, the last uh, million and a quarter or so dollars to the electoral fund in the last election, thereby seemingly just guaranteeing the one-seat victory he needed to become Prime Minister. Julie Bishop has a reputation of being able to raise funds for the party. Uh, I think there's a deeper issue here in that political parties shouldn't need to raise funds. There, are, there is government funding for legitimate political parties. If you get more than 4% of the primary vote, you get X amount of dollars back for each vote you get. This is how smaller parties are able to survive. And I, I think it's right and I think it's as it should be. I think that we should encourage parties to not have to rely on corporate money or even small donors' money. I think that uh, if you're serious, you should be supported. And once people drop you, well, that's fine too. It allows for the Greens. It allows for One Nation. It allows for the Nationals and, of course, Liberal and Labor. It helps in diversity but when the Liberal Party is needing millions and millions of dollars, and again, you wonder why. There's free advertising in News Corp for them, every press release. There's free advertising on Sky for them, every, you know, after dark and all of that. I think it shows a real desperation in the Liberal Party to make sure that their campaign funds are really high. And, of course, it's that American model, too, that these great Australian patriots keep pushing towards. Now, speaking of money needed for by-elections and elections in general, there is the Wentworth by-election coming up towards the end of October, and the Liberal Party candidate is David Sharma. He has come out to say that he's neither moderate or conservative, so I'm not sure what that actually means or what he is, but he was primarily brought in for his fundraising capacities as well, so that will be tested to the limits. But some polls in the seat are showing that it's 50-50 or 47-53 for the Liberal Party, so that means that they're behind. It's only a by-election, but it's a big by-election, isn't it? So there's quite a few things that need to be considered here. It's, it's unlikely to force the loss of the government on the floor of Parliament if the Liberal Party do lose that seat, but it will definitely cause some problems for them. That seat has always been problematic for the Liberal Party. Its state equivalent was held by Michael Yabsley, senior Liberal cabinet member in New South Wales. He was Minister for Corrective Services and a couple of other portfolios. Clover Moore ran against him and she took it from him in a shock and then she held it till they basically changed the rules to take it off her. Malcolm Turnbull was a very popular local member in 2007 on election night. Uh, he'd actually gained a swing towards him against every other Liberal member in, in the country. Every other Liberal member had a swing against them. Some were massive, of course. Some were good local members who, who took a bit of a swing. Turnbull got a 2 two or 3% swing towards him, if I remember correctly. 
it's a seat that likes its local members. It's, of course, a more diverse seat than we would think. Yes, it's in the very affluent eastern suburbs, but it also takes in a large portion of LGTBQI community. It also has a lot of creative types, actors, writers, musicians who live in it. And it's a seat that isn't guaranteed liberal in, say, the way that the seat of North Sydney might be. It's slightly possible that it could go to the ALP, given that the main independent candidate, Karen Phelps, has just said she's going to direct preferences to Liberals. Well, the Liberal Party, it seems like it's no country for women, young or old. Only 24% of all Liberal MPs in federal parliament are women. Scott Morrison, the new Prime Minister, his preferred candidate was Catherine O'Regan for the pre-selection of the Liberal Party in the seat of Wentworth. She was the former Mayor of Woolara, but she didn't get a look in. He was snubbed, the Prime Minister. What does the Wentworth by-election mean for Scott Morrison? I think it is a test for him. I think that there's going to be some kind of backlash towards him taking Prime Ministership off their local member. Prime Ministers tend to get a couple of extra percent swing in their seat. John Howard was able to hold on to Bennelong. Billy McMahon was able to hold on to Strathfield, which was a swing seat. When McMahon left politics, it went back to being a swing seat. Kim Beasley turned the seat of Swan into a safe seat. Now he's leader of the opposition, but it's the same thing. You get a 2 or 3% bump as prime minister or leader of the opposition. And I think given the whole mysterious nature of Malcolm Turnbull's removal and that no one can quite articulate why they did it, I think there's going to be some kind of backlash. I don't think Dave Sharma is anywhere near a shoe-in. He's got that try-hard or try-too-hard attitude of the Prime Minister. I don't know who put it about that Dave Sharma was Australia's Obama and then tried to link that into fundraising, ignoring the fact that Obama went to the poor and dispossessed and asked them to send as much as they could afford, whereas Dave Sharma is, of course, going down Pitt Street and George Street and getting money in that way and getting larger sums. Well, the problem for David Sharma is that he doesn't actually live in the seat. I feel that it's going to be quite a difficult seat for him to win. It may end up possibly being a two-step strategy for David Sharma. So running in this by-election, if he does lose the seat for the Liberal Party, that's there's another general election due before May 2019. So if he doesn't win this time around, I'm sure that he'll go for it again. I'm not prepared to call it for anyone yet because it, it could go anyway and none of them no result i can see will be terribly surprising it could be another independent who hasn't had much coverage who who knows you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on itunes listen through soundcloud youtube and spotify or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au up next we look at the new royal commission and find out why we are having so many of them
new Prime Minister has announced the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Quality and Safety. We still don't know what the terms and conditions are, but we've had quite a few Royal Commissions recently. Since the Royal Commissions Act was introduced in 1902, we've had a wide range of commissions and inquiries, but over the past five years we've had six of them. Banking, child sexual abuse by the churches, trade unions, insulation schemes, youth detention systems, and now there's aged care and nursing homes. Why are we having so many Royal Commissions? Is, is it a sign that the government is not doing its job properly? We can put our tinfoil hats on and wonder if they're having so many Royal Commissions to undermine the potency of a Royal Commission, given that they've got a banking Royal Commission that they were dragged kicking and screaming into. I think Tony Abbott's strategy of weaponising anything has backfired on him. The Trade Union Royal Commission came up with one set of charges, which I believe either didn't get to court or were found in a not guilty finding. Other than that, despite its relentless chasing of Bill Shorten, of Julia Gillard, and with a Liberal appointed as its commissioner, couldn't find anything wrong or inappropriate. I think Julia Gillard was told she should have kept better records from 25 years ago. Hardly a damning indictment of her qualities as a person. The Royal Commission into the Trade Unions, that was a complete waste of time and money. It cost over $80 million to, to run that campaign. So that was obviously a politically motivated campaign. The Royal Commission into the insulation scheme that was run by the Rudd government during 2008 to 2010 that inquiry was a waste of money as well. It uncovered nothing at all. The idea of Royal Commissions is that it's meant to shine the light on a particular subject, and those two Royal Commissions didn't shine any light on anything. I must say that the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse by the churches, that certainly uncovered quite a lot. But the Aged Care and Nursing Homes Royal Commission, I think that probably will be a good one. But all of these problems, they seem to be caused by government policy. And government policy that's not aimed at the most good that can be done, but to entrench established positions. Aged care, according to those Four Corners reports, is a, another wrought by a few wealthy stakeholders who have managed to develop a system that means they get maximum money for minimum return. Okay, that's business. But some things don't work for max maximum return for minimum money. Well, my feeling is that a lot of these problems in aged care, if we have a look at quite a few of the social services in Australia, aged care, health, early education, schooling as well, uh, the university sector, all of these problems can be sheeted back to the Howard government policies between 1996 and 2007, where, especially within aged care, there was the Moran Group that was provided with so much support and and funding, and they used to provide kickbacks to the Liberal Party as well. So the other problem is that once you set up these sorts of policies where there's private sector intervention into social services, it takes decades for all of this to change. And we've still got a lot of issues that need to be resolved from that Howard government time. So definitely within aged care, health, education, there's hopefully a lot of things that will be uncovered within this Royal Commission into Aged Care, but definitely I'd say that we need to have a look at those policies that were introduced by the Howard government. For sure, and why they were introduced. One of the things that's becoming clearer and clearer, and we can look at this when I say globally within the United States, within the 
United Kingdom and within Australia is the failure of the neoliberal project. The market has not worked to solve problems. Uh, in fact, the market has worked in some cases to create far worse problems than there were before. Telecommunications, aged care, education, all of these things have gotten more expensive and less accessible and poorer quality under a so-called market system which was brought in on the argument that people would get choice. We have less choice and prices have gone up and continue to go up. It still gets back to the issue about royal commissions and, and government. So there is that old yes minister argument that before any government calls on a royal commission, they need to know what the answers are. It's not so much the questions, but in this case, we still don't know what the questions or the answers are going to be for this royal commission into aged care quality and safety. But it does get back to that issue about why there are so many problems within this particular sector. And as we saw in the recent Four Corners reports, and and for me, it's just a case of government simply not doing their job. And calling on the Royal Commission is a little bit of a cop-out. It, it's almost like saying, well, yes, we are going to do something about this. We're holding a Royal Commission. It's something that seems to be pushed beyond the next federal election. It was a panicked response. Uh, as soon as Four Corners announced there were going to be explosive revelations, Scott Morrison called a Royal Commission without having seen the show. So he knew what was going on at some level. And that was to obviously to diffuse the obvious and justified anger that people were going to have. And should we change the structure of the Royal Commissions? Because it seems like a, a government can call on a Royal Commission whenever it feels like it. The Royal Commission into Youth Detention Systems, that was brought on the day after another Four Corners program on the ABC 18 months ago. The current aged care one that's been called, that was, as you mentioned, that was called to preempt the Four Corners report. The Sexual Abuse Royal Commission that was brought on after revelations were brought out on Lateline, the now defunct program on the ABC. So it seems like there's only a response once the media brings out these issues. And it's usually the ABC that brings out these issues as well. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I'm of the school of thought that says despite all the best efforts of the government, the ABC remains a fairly unbiased and certainly a vital service to the country. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we assess the first month of Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. said that he's been feeling the love, praying for that rain, channeling Fat Man Scoop, 
derided the leadership spill as the Muppet Show and shows his nationalistic pride on his chest. When he moves into evangelistic mode in Parliament, he looks like a mix between Mark Latham, Billy Graham and an accountant. It's been a month since Scott Morrison became the Prime Minister and it's been a combination of clearing the decks, putting out fires and trying to make himself more visible to the Australian electorate. He's only been in for one month. He's got an election coming up before May 2019. Is Scott Morrison stepping up to the plate? He hasn't impressed in his first month. The job of Prime Minister is one that is not good for your short-term reputation and in many cases not good for your long-term reputation. Some Prime Ministers, of course, their reputations have some kind of rehabilitation. John Howard is looked upon more fondly than he was in uh, 2007. Julia Gillard is looked upon much more fondly than she was in uh, 2013. Scott Morrison hasn't impressed. One, he hasn't been able to explain why he took the job in any substantial way. We don't really know what his vision for Australia is. We can assume that he wants a Christian nation that tends to Anglo, that has the traditional values of certainly a pre-Rudd government, probably a pre-Whitlam government. But apart from that, we don't know what that really means. We can, as I said, we can make assumptions. His uh, religious faith. I want to use the word intrusive. I'm not quite sure that that's the right word, but it's certainly much more prominent than Kevin Rudd's deeply held religious faith and certainly much more noticeable, not in terms of the moral bearing of, of either man, but in terms of the way he speaks, in terms of the way he talks, in terms of the way he outwardly behaves as a member of that congregation. Well, Morrison was raised in the Presbyterian Church, but he's now a Pentecostal and he attends the Horizon Church in the Sutherland Shire. Now, this is one of the most conservative and least diverse urban areas in Australia. Around 74% of the population is Anglo-Australian and around 72-73% support a Christian-based faith. I also discovered that he contemplated studying theology, but his father told him, forget that idea, best if you move into a business-related field. Scott Morrison is the member for Cook, that's in the Sutherland Shire. He's got to be a little bit more than just the Prime Minister for the Sutherland Shire. He's, he's got to be a little bit more than the the Prime Minister for Rugby League. He's got to broaden his appeal a little bit more if he wants to survive as Prime Minister. He has a tin ear too. I'm trying not to be harsh. I'm trying to be fair and balanced and look for good points of him. And his good points seem to be that he's affable and that he is, that he genuinely, he seems to genuinely enjoy Rugby League, which is really a neutral point. You know, whether he enjoys it or not makes no difference as to how good or not he is as a prime minister. Bob Carr, of course, famously loathed sport, yet was able to be re-elected more times than any other premier in New South Wales. You're absolutely correct. Whether he really likes rugby league or not, and it seems like he does, he's a fan of the Cronulla Sharks, and that's fine. But I guess it's it's also that thing about how does this reflect within the electorate? If, if the electorate doesn't believe it or if they feel that he's a bit of a phony like it's almost like if Paul Keating all of a sudden became a sports fan or if Bob Carr became a sports fan they were neither interested or promoted that idea of sport and if they did they would have been marked down by the electorate. Well Bob Carr they did try having him turn up to the rugby league and 
Mark Latham documents it in his diaries. Bob stays for 40 minutes and they find him in the car park and he says, oh, it's over. And they say, Bob, it's half time. There's still another 40 minutes to go. <laughs> it didn't work and they stopped trying to make him like sport. Scott Morrison has a tin air. He called his own colleagues Muppets. We've stopped the Muppet show. It was reminiscent of Tony Abbott's Good Government Starts Today. Shouldn't it have started 18 months ago? I'm very sure that he'd regret using the term Muppet Show because that's been used quite a lot over the past three or four weeks. But media, it's got, it's got amnesia uh, collectively. So in a couple of months' time, we'll forget about the, the Muppet Show and the fact that he used that. I, I don't know, actually. I think that's going to be the thing that sort of sticks. Malcolm Turnbull had the top hat. Of course, having the stupid... Or raise your hands in Parliament and then putting it to the music of Fat Man's Scoop. Now, despite taking the song out of context, it was still inappropriate. If you got a $100 bill, put your hand up. There are plenty of Australians, thanks to his own economic policies, who don't have a $100 bill, who are struggling. But that's probably one of those try-hard media tactics that he used. The call to hands up in question time rework to Fat Man's Scoop. But I also researched that he provided a visa to Snoop Dogg back in 2014. So maybe he's got a bit of a rap thing going on in the background. All of these different issues. He's also an aggressive nationalist. He's putting on the Australian flag lapel on his breast, the we're on your side mantra that he keeps repeating. He's called the Byron Bay Council self-loathing for voting to move their Australia Day celebrations to January 25th. So he's obviously pushing an agenda. And he's also got Mark Textor working for him as well. Mark Textor, of course, was the one half of the famous uh, Crosby-Textor combination that worked for John Howard during his time in government. He's still trying to work out his image. He's still trying to push forward the image that he wants the Australian electorate to see. It may work. It's, a, it's early days. But my other consideration is that the new Morrison government isn't really governing. It's just sending up these outrage flares into the sky to see what, what sticks and what takes hold within the Australian electorate. For example, the new education minister, Dan Tehan, he's made a push to ban mobile phones in all schools. Now, initially he said it was going to ban mobile phones in all schools, but he changed that to banning mobile phones in classrooms. There's a number of factors here. It's not within his jurisdiction. All of these issues are for states, and it's a policy that exists in all schools anyway. So the other thing that he wants to do is that he wants to charge student protesters a fee for protesting. It's unrealistic. It's unworkable. It's got nothing to do with education, but the education minister persists. Free speech is free. I'm sure the producers of Sky and the backers of Sky will tell you, no free speech, we have to pay a licence fee and we have to pay you know, cameraman fees and sound person fees. And, but to charge protesters is an outrageous thing. And students are going to protest. When the Labor government comes in, there will be student protesters, probably who vote for the other side. And that's fine and that's as it should be. You can't stop students protesting because that's part of the university experience. It's a government that, not really knowing why it was put in, doesn't know now what to do. He spent months working the numbers and doing the deals to position himself to become Prime Minister. A bit like Malcolm Turnbull and a bit like 
John Howard in his later years, he couldn't really express why they were still there, what role they felt they had and what direction they felt they wanted Australia to go in. He probably hasn't had enough time to work out what the direction is going to be, but the most essential thing that he is doing is putting out a lot of these spot fires. A good example of that is the $4.5 billion that's been redirected to non-government schools. There's been a strong issue within the Catholic school sector that they've been lobbying hard against the government. Previously, it was against Malcolm Turnbull. Scott Morrison, it seems, he wanted this problem just to go away. It's very similar to what John Howard did when he was Prime Minister. If there's a problem and if there's an election coming up, throw money at the problem, make it go away until after the election. It's the same with the Royal Commission into Aged Care. It's exactly what Scott Morrison is doing. He's trying to put out all of these little spot fires. He's identified what they are, and I'm pretty sure that's what he'll probably do for the next six months. If any issue arises, he'll throw money or deny, deny, deny that something is a problem. It's government by panic. Adrian Piccoli, the education minister for New South Wales, national, was scathing about the $4.5 million into into non-government schools, partly... Uh, Adrian Piccoli has been a defender of public schools, as he should be, as Minister for Education. But he pointed out, too, that a lot of poorer and remote Catholic schools were missing out, and they were the ones that actually needed the money. And in some remote communities, the Catholic school provides an essential service because the public school either isn't big enough or is basically non-existent. Whereas, of course, in the city, where I suspect a lot of money is going, the Catholic school isn't as badly needed because there are perfectly good public schools around. doesn't need the government funding. The whole issue of should we be funding schools that have said we do not like being run by the government is a whole other thing that I don't think any deep thought has been put into by the Prime Minister. I found it very interesting that in his first speech that he wanted to give Australians choices to how we educate. At that point, I thought his vision will be to give even more money to private schools. And it's one of the first things he he did, $4.5 billion, after announcing cuts to healthcare, after announcing cuts to everywhere else, this money goes into what will be elite private schools. And you would have driven past private schools where new gates are going up. I believe that one of the elite private schools in Sydney is putting in a helicopter pad because, of course, they are extra parking for students. Well, obviously, that $4.5 billion is money that's going to be well spent. The media is always interested to see what a new prime minister is like. Even if Peter Dutton had have won the leadership spill last month, there'd still be an intense media interest in, in what he's like. Now, all of the focus is on the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Is this a problem for Bill Shorten? Because we haven't heard much from him recently. You know, I don't think it is. Given that Bill has just been beavering beavering away for the last four or five years, I don't think he's the new Goff or even the new Kevin. Bill is a solid, if unremarkable person, uh, unremarkable leader of the Labor Party. They're now in a strategy of not small target, but letting the other side. You don't have to go very long and the Liberal Party shoot themselves in the foot again. And I think that you can make things worse. Sometimes things are just, you don't need to say anything because a picture says a thousand words. And Scott Morrison will come out and say something, a prime example, 
Scott Morrison says, why don't we have a separate day to celebrate Indigenous culture? Now, that's a problematic approach, but okay, there's an idea. Tony Abbott, the envoy for Indigenous people, says, oh, that's a stupid idea. Suddenly there's government dissension. Now, of course, ministers and prime ministers are allowed to agree and disagree, but it was clearly another one of those not thought through plans that wasn't discussed with anybody, and it's not a good look. As leader of the opposition, you'd let this play out. Maybe at the end you'd say, look at what that has done. This is typical of these guys. They don't know what they're doing. Meanwhile, I have my team who are just beavering away, preparing policy, preparing ideas. Scott Morrison's personality doesn't help. As you said, he he's a cross between Mark Latham, Billy Graham, and an accountant. And he's got the sort of sanity of Mark Latham, the outside interest of Billy Graham, and the charisma of your stereotypical accountant. So he's got all the wrong parts of those three things. If he had the brains of the accountant, the drive of Billy Graham, and the the energy of Mark Latham, we might be onto something here. His press hasn't been overly good either. I, I know that News Corp have been pushing him as a good, solid Aussie bloke who's a bit of a dag. The rest of the press has been a little bit cool. Normally a new Prime Minister has the honeymoon period. This could be Scott Morrison's high watermark. Because there is a lot of media attention on him, generally the media and the Australian electorate, they like to go easy on a new Prime Minister, but it's just that when the going gets tough, that's when things are going to become more difficult for him. So we're coming up towards the end of 2018. It's going to be a fascinating time over the next few months to see how he manipulates the whole media strategy, the whole direction of the government, and whether that's acceptable to the Australian electorate. I'm also wondering if there's a strategy that the Victorian election and the Victorian Liberal Party are a basket case. The Victorian election and the New South Wales election will get get it out of the vote system after taking the baseball bats to both parties, that they'll be sated for federally um, and so won't be as vicious to the federal party after or having beaten up the two state parties. I think that underestimates the Australian public a little bit, but you never know. It might be a thing. I think they need to win three seats because of the redistribution. And the old baseball bats analogy, that, that was presented by former Premier of Queensland, Wayne Goss, and he said that in the 1996 election, as far as the Paul Keating government was concerned, that the voters were waiting with their baseball bats. This time around, it just depends on how many baseball bats the Australian electorate has in its collection. So whether it wants to inflict damage on the New South Wales Liberals, whether it wants to inflict some more damage on the Victorian Liberals who are in opposition and then save up some more baseball bats for the for the federal elections. So I just think that it's going to be quite fascinating because we've never had this array of big elections across Victoria and New South Wales and the federal government. We haven't had that in a long, long time. So it is going to be fascinating to see how all of this plays out over the next six months. It's a great time to be a political pundit. So that's it for this new Policies podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give our program a five-star rating or even better, give us a review. I'm Eddie Djokovic and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. Thanks very much and we'll see you next month.